0: Hello, and welcome to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. In our last podcast of the current season, we have a second discussion about the government's stated ambition to become a science superpower. With me to explore that is Matthew Burnett, Head of Science and Technology at the think tank Onward. Matthew Burnett, welcome to the podcast. Thanks
1: very much for having me, Gavin. It's a pleasure.
0: So couldn't you start by telling us a little bit about Onward and, and the study that you've been carrying out on the science superpower issue?
1: Absolutely. So Onwards a relatively new on the scene in Westminster. It was set up four years ago by Will Tanner, who was the deputy head of policy for Theresa May, Uh, Neil O'Brien, who until last week was the levelling up minister, and Danny Finkelstein. And Will is our director now, and Danny is uh, the chairman of the board. But the Science and Technology Research programme is new this year. So I started as head of the programme in March. And our aim is to look behind the rhetoric of the science superpower claims that the government's been making and work out what it would really mean for the UK to be a science superpower and how we might achieve that. And just a little bit about our sort of ethos. Will was very keen for Onward not to take corporate sponsorship for any of our research. Uh, So in order to be able to give unbiased reports. And so we're Very grateful to the Wellcome Trust, the Perivoli Foundation and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation for supporting our science superpower programme.
0: Well, that's that's great and a helpful introduction. And that science superpower programme produces an initial report, which is coming out this week. What does that report say about the the kind of characteristics of a science superpower? Yeah,
1: so we wanted to start off by kind of diagnosing where we're currently at. What is a science superpower? Are we one already? Can we become one? And so that's what this paper tries to do. And first of all, I guess there are a few self-evident traits of a, a superpower. So obviously the term was initially dreamt up during the, the Cold War. To think about Russia and the US and actually the UK as these superpowers of hard and soft influence. It's like hard and soft power. And so when we're looking at a more specific things like a science superpower, I think there's still going to be an element of exerting power, whether it be hard or soft power. And clearly it's got to be international influence. But there's a couple of other things. Rather than being this broad term that looks at the whole military-industrial complex and diplomacy and everything, there's a science superpower that's going to come from specific comparative advantages. Um, And so we've tried to, to look at what those kind of science advantages might be. There's these two axes that you can look at, a domestic focus versus an international focus and more applied science or or basic science. And then, you know, if you arrange that in a bit of a grid, you've got these four quadrants within which those things kind of crystallize into these four different facets of what a superpower might be. So looking at basic and domestic capability, that would be our national research activity you know, what work is going on in our institutions to push the frontiers of science. And we termed that sort of our academic foundations. And then if you look at the basic and international quadrant, that's our influence on how science is done globally. So how much are we impacting, what kind of science is done, how it's done. And we call that the sort of knowledge networks facet. Then if you look at the applied side, Domestic applied facet, that would be our sort of absorptive capacity. So how able are we as a country to actually use those scientific and technological advances to strengthen our economy, to make our population more healthy? Those, those kind of parts, that you know, deliver national security. And then the applied and international part, that's, you know, exporting technology. And so we try to diagnose how the UK's placed in those four spheres.
0: Well, don't leave us in suspense. How do you think the UK does measure up against those four categories in your imaginary two-by-two grid?
1: Yeah, so first of all, I guess I've got to say we did most of these comparisons against a little basket of countries that we figured were our competitors. So that was the US and Canada, uh, Japan and Korea, China, Israel, France and Germany. And we saw those as in various ways, being you know, potential science superpowers who are or competitors to that title because of their spending on r and or their technological expertise, their power as an exporter, those sort of things. So compared to, to this sort of group of comparative countries, our competitors, I think in terms of the academic foundations piece, so that's kind of the amount of research that's happening domestically, that basic research, we actually don't fare that well. As a share of the economy, the UK spends very little on research and development compared to all of these countries. It's a relatively long running trend. So 40 years ago, we were one of the most research intensive economies in the world. Uh, We spent about 2.24% of our GDP on R&D, which was more than Japan at the time and only marginally less than the US. But since then we've dropped down to about 1.8, 1.9% and kind of flatlined for, for the last few decades while our competitors have been spending increasingly more on, on R&D. And I think that's one of the proposed reasons why our productivity, for example, has, has dropped off or has kind of slowed as a nation.
0: I mean, that's a measure of quantity rather than a measure of quality. And are those countries that are spending more than us achieving the same level of quality throughout all of that expenditure?
1: Well, that's a very valid question. And I think that takes us on to, if we're looking at this second point, that's a little bit on the the knowledge network, sort of like how how are we using that research? And I think a lot of it depends on which part of the applied to basic research, which part of that scale that, that research spending is happening on. And basically, since the 80s, the UK have made a a firm bet on universities, and that bet has paid off. I mean, we do have many of the best universities in the world. We attract a lot of the most talented students and uh, faculty in the world, and we generate a lot of the best peer-reviewed research. So by that measure, we are getting great value for money. There's definitely, well, actually both quantity, because we we produce the third highest uh, amount of highly cited papers in the world after the USA and China, who are obviously a lot bigger countries. And in terms of value for money per sort of dollar spent, we lead on that measure too. So So you're right, if we're looking at papers that people cite, we're doing very well. However, on the other end of the the scale, how much research are we doing that's actually developing new products um, and potentially feeding into the economy we don't compare so well. And that's where countries like Germany, Korea, even Japan and the US are, are streaks ahead and, and have been for decades.
0: So that covers that element, I think. What about the absorptive capacity and the exports, that that kind of international uh, and, and applied research side?
1: Yeah, so in terms of absorptive capacity, I, mean, I think this is a really interesting facet because it shows that you don't necessarily need to be generating all of these new technologies uh, and discoveries. If you can be the person, the the country that implements them the best and the fastest, actually that's going to give you a a great comparative advantage. So how are we doing on that front? I think there's room for improvement. It's not all bad news, but I think despite, for example, training a lot of STEM graduates, we actually have quite few researchers in our workforce, you know, people working, in a research capacity, and I think that's down to both supply and demand issues. So on, on the one hand, we do we train a lot of foreign students that are then often leave the country, and hopefully that is going to change now. That there's been some new visa rules that should make it easier for to sort of retain that talent. But also, uh, you know, as we pointed out earlier, our spending on R and D is low, and particularly business spending on R and D is low, and so. If you have a research degree, who's going to hire you to to do that research? So I think some room room for improvement there. Uh, And in terms of technology exports, yeah, it's interesting because previously this was a strength of ours. I mean, in the year 2000, the UK made up more than a tenth of the world's pharmaceutical exports. And now it's less than 4%. You know, looking a bit further back in the 1950s, we were the leader of automotive exports. And now we're nowhere near that. So... I think we've got quite a downward trajectory in terms of technology exports, and I think you know there's no way to really sugarcoat that.
0: Okay, so we've got this kind of analysis of the different strengths and weaknesses across this quadrant that you've described in the report that uh, you're releasing this week. You you then go on to identify potential reforms within the kind of the whole UK science ecosystem in order. For the UK to become a science superpower if that is the policy direction. So can we tease out what some of these reforms are? What, what are the things that you're recommending here?
1: Yeah, so as the first paper in our research programme, it's more of a diagnostic piece, you know, where are we currently at? So we haven't gone into detail on the specific policy reforms that we'd recommend, but we do have some general idea as to probably what needs to be done. So I think first of all, science policy and science funding needs to become a bit more strategic. If we're going to be a science superpower, we can't take on these nations like China and the US who are these huge economies. Um, We can't take them on across the board and hope to compete in, in every sphere. But what we can do is pick, you know, areas of comparative advantage where we actually can be world leaders. So rather than try and make microchips better than Taiwan does, maybe we say, OK, an emerging area like artificial intelligence or quantum computing or small modular nuclear reactors, if we invest now, and that's going to pay off in decades to come as these sectors grow and we could emerge as one of the, the leaders in these areas. And I think the flip side to that strategic investment is we've got to identify areas of strategic vulnerability where we have to invest. So that could be energy security, for example, or or health security. And we we saw how that paid off in the COVID-19 pandemic, where we had this domestic capacity in vaccine production and vaccine design, uh, and that paid great dividends.
0: So I guess the logical question is, do we know where our comparative advantages are? Do we know where our strategic weaknesses are? are? And do we have the, the structures in place that might help us actually answer that question? Obviously, the government's recently set up the new Office for Science and Technology Strategy. Do, I mean, does that help? What What's your view on, on whether we can answer the question before we can then move on, on taking decisions?
1: So I think we haven't been prepared to answer these questions. But as you say, there, there have been in, in recent years, some positive movements in the right direction. And I think one of the things that's come out of our research is that actually a lot of these these sort of industrial strategy pieces, it's not on a national level. It's more on a regional level or even a sort of city and surrounding suburbs kind of area. Uh, And so I think we need to do that sort of analysis to say, okay, where can, for example, like the advanced manufacturing cluster in Sheffield, can that be? a world-leading advanced manufacturing area? Can it bring in that investment from businesses, both domestic and and foreign? I think that's been a success. So we need that sort of analysis that goes a little bit more granular as to, okay, is there regional capacity or capability to be world-leading? And what are the other regions that we're competing against doing that sort of benchmark analysis? And saying, okay, what's it going to take to be competitive with the current world-leading area on quantum computing or nuclear reactor design or whatever it may be? And then having a bit more of an active approach to then making, making that competitive. And I think Ireland is a good example of a country that's done this and they've, they've approached the world-leading companies and said, okay, what are you going to need? What's the skills pipeline that you need? What's the infrastructure that's necessary if this is going to be competitive? And then providing that, and I think we can learn a couple of lessons from that.
0: So, let's assume that we do manage to identify these areas of competitive advantage, strategic weakness, and and we we start to tackle those. What are the other things coming out of your report that uh, the UK government needs to do or change or, or reform?
1: One thing that I mentioned earlier is that our, our universities are great they're world leading they're producing a lot of great research but that research is not often taken through to businesses to products to spin-outs. Uh, that sort of commercialization piece has been weak for us and i think there's been some positive movement in the right direction and the clusters and the uh, the catapults are intending to try and fill a bit of this gap but they're still a lot smaller than comparative organizations like the Fraunhoffers in Germany for example and I think there is a question if we look at a lot of these competitors like the USA for example has its national labs and uh, you know as I mentioned Germany has the Fraunhofer's and the Max Plancks there are these non-teaching research institutions that do a lot of this strategic research um, and they do a couple of other functions too that I think are really important so but one of them can be more of that commercialization piece connecting up um, industry to research And, and the other one comes down to the absorptive capacity so it's that sort of technology extension center role where they're trying to help local businesses actually use the technological advances that are coming out of the the cutting edge research now i'm not sure if our universities can i guess sort of be reformed or supported to provide these roles, and I think that that may be possible, or it may be that actually we do need to reinvest in, in the national lab system that we've kind of let atrophy over the past few decades, or in fact whether these catapults and clusters can be emboldened to fill that gap. But I think there does need to be some sort of institutional reform there.
0: Well, one possible implication from what you're saying, as the government Uh, has made a a commitment to a substantial increase in the science budget, or at least the the publicly funded part uh, of R&D, that more of that money potentially should be focused in this area of commercialization, either to universities or national laboratories or others, rather than a larger amount uh, going towards basic research. I mean, is is that a reasonable conclusion?
1: Yeah, I I think that is a good idea, but it does need to be done carefully. So I think what the UK policy to date has focused a lot on research and development tax credits or various other sort of tax incentives to try and get businesses to spend more. And they've been hugely costly to the public purse, but they haven't really delivered more of that R&D activity. So, you know, in 2018, the UK's tax relief on R&D were worth, Uh, 0.25% of GDP compared to the OECD average of 0.1%. And yet, UK business investment in R&D was significantly lower than the OECD average. And that that comes on years of sort of incrementally increasing um, tax incentives. So I think that sort of approach clearly isn't working. So we've got to think, okay, well, why isn't that working? What can we do better? And I think one of the issues is... Policy churn. If you look at Japan, for example, they've got quite a, a low level of tax incentive, but they've had the same tax credit system in place since 1980. Germany has their sort of 10-year long-term plans for science funding. And the UK every two years seems to bring out a new tax incentive. And so I think part of it is it's not so much the, the quantity, but the longevity. And I think that works sort of on two levels. If you look at small businesses, so, you know, my dad runs a a small tech firm and he has to hire a third party tax consultancy to work out uh, how much R&D tax incentives uh, his firm can claim because it's so complicated. And if you look at a larger firm, if you're, you know, a Rolls-Royce or or a large kind of industry-leaning but R&D intense firm, and you're thinking about building new research centers, for example, you're not looking two years in advance, you're looking 10, 20 years in advance to see the return on that investment. So you need to understand what the government's incentives are gonna be and what the the strategic priorities are going to be in order to make that decision. And because of the the churn, the policy churn and the kind of flux in UK policy priorities, they haven't made those investments here, they've made them elsewhere. So, I mean, I, I think it's ironic because, of course, I'm sort of asking for reforms, but to be the last set of reforms, please, and then just let's stick with these ones. And I don't know how feasible that that is.
0: I'm certainly interested in the UK political system that we have and with the way that the, the media are always looking to see what new government is going to do to solve problem X or Y, how you actually build that kind of long-term, broad consensus to keep policy certainty over any length of time. It sounds an uphill struggle to me, but maybe there are things we can learn from other countries as to how they do that.
1: Yeah, I think on the plus side, I don't think that science and technology is a partisan issue. I think all all of the UK parties want us to thrive and to have a, a positive science and technology sector that feeds into national productivity I think they're all proud of what we've been able to do. So that's a good building block for that kind of cross-party support. But I think we, we've we got to look for that cross-party support. And, and that's what Germany's done with their 10-year plans. You know, they they get buy-in from, from all of the political parties. It is, you know, clearly it's a, a different system and they're, they're more used to coalition governments and things like that. But I don't think that's beyond the wit of man, hopefully, to be able to, get a bit of cross-party support there when it comes to the specific strategic advantages that can be a bit more contentious you know, for example the SNP are not going to back research in nuclear technology or, or gm crops crop you know, gene editing that sort of thing so that could be a bit more difficult but again how, how important is that when you're looking at westminster politics maybe maybe you don't need them to be part of this cross-party support so I think there's a potential there, but whether there's sort of an appetite within Westminster for that kind of cross-party agreement, uh, it's difficult
0: to say. Are there any other sort of recommendations that come out of this initial report? I take the point that there's a lot more work to be done here.
1: Uh, I, I guess one other thing to think about, and I talked a little bit about this when I was talking about the need for a strategic regional investment. The r tax credit, for example, pours a lot of government support into areas that are already doing a lot of research. And so that's often the southeast of England. And I think if we're reforming that, it's possible to link up the levelling up agenda with this science superpower agenda and see some of the positive spillovers from science and technology funding going into areas of the, the southeast. And so I think the clusters are good way of doing that and clearly there are great universities dotted across the uk that can be sort of nuclei through which these these sort of um technological areas of excellence can can build around and that's why i think the the cluster and catapult system is quite a good one but if we were to go more towards a national lab model again the placement of those national labs could take this into account but i think there needs to be that regional analysis and Richard Jones does, does a lot of good work on this, but I think we mustn't forget that piece as well. Cause I think there is a, a danger that we try and pour more money into Oxford and Cambridge, for example, because perhaps the sort of easy returns on investment are there, but I think that's missing an opportunity.
0: So as we come to the end, just uh, one final question. If the government were to start to take up some of the recommendations and the ideas coming out of your report, what are the kind of actions you'd like to see them take in the near future, over the next 12, 18, 24 months?
1: Yeah, so clearly not all of this can be driven by univers- by, by government. For example, the roles that university take, you know, they are independent organisations, albeit quite influenced by the funding structures that the government controls. But I think in the short term, a reform to the R&D tax incentives, and maybe switching that less to tax credits and more to directed funding into regions and research areas that have been deemed to be worthwhile, you know, for that comparative advantage or that kind of strategic need. So having done that analysis, then directing that money, and I think part of that can be done through government procurement too. So for example, NHS procurement could be driving research in the life sciences sector. That could be funding Spin out companies to develop products that the NHS needs to provide healthcare. Or, you know, obviously, defense is the is a classic example. But equally, the, the net zero agenda, you know, that needs new technologies. Maybe the government could be funding those through procurement or through direct grants, of which there are a lot that come out of bays already. But I think those sorts of instruments might deliver more of the kind of returns that we're looking for. And Hopefully, that government support in those areas that have been identified can hopefully then crowd in more private R&D spending as well and help us get up towards that 2.4% target.
0: Fantastic. Well, we've come to the end of our time. Just before we close, we've obviously been talking about a report that's come out this week. Where can people find a copy of that report to read, read up all the details?
1: Yes, yeah, so if you head to our website, ukonward.com, uh, you can find the reward on there. Uh, and you can also follow us on whichever social media platform you desire, Twitter or LinkedIn. And we'll have comments coming out on there and links to the paper as well.
0: Fantastic. Well, that is the end. Matthew Burnett, thank you very much.
1: Thanks for having me, Kevin.
0: You've been listening to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. My guest this week was Matthew Burnett, Head of Science and Technology at the Think Tank Onward, and the report that Matthew and I were discussing is available on the Onward website. More information about the Foundation for Science and Technology can be found on our website at www.foundation.org.uk. There you'll find details of all our events, all our blogs, and all previous editions of this podcast. This is the last podcast before we take a break for the summer, and we'll be back in September. Until then, goodbye.